Hi, welcome to the Digging Deeper podcast. I'm Larry Stewart with 4constructionpros.com. You know, the need for vaccinations and the movement by the White House and the industries toward uh, uh, vaccination in places of business has really got a lot of people talking right now. So I got on the phone here with James Junkin, who's president of Mariner Gulf Consulting and Services, which is an occupational safety and health consulting firm. And he's also a master trainer for Veriforce, an international supply chain risk management company. James, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me, Larry. Well, you know, there's so much that we can learn from you, I'm sure. Uh, you've been in deep into this uh, subject already. Um, the White House's order applies to companies with 100 or more employees. Is that 100 employees in one location, or do they aggregate staff at multiple locations? Well, that, that is a good question. I mean, beyond the initial statement by the president and the press release from the White House, very little official information has been released by the administration or by OSHA as to what exactly the minute details are going to be in the ETS. And I refer to this as the ETS as emergency temporary standards. So your listeners need to understand when I say ETS, what I mean is the, the, the new mandate from the White House to be enforced by, by OSHA. So the simplest answer to your question is, we don't know. Now, my opinion is, is that OSHA will probably tie the numbers of employees into the same way and manner that it does OSHA recordable injuries. So basically by incorporation and by whether or not uh, a company, if you will, has direct control of that employee. So that could include multiple locations. It could possibly include independent contractors that you have direct control over. Uh, so if you're a hiring client that directs the work, those employees, although they're on the payroll for another uh, organization, could potentially be included in your, in your account. We'll just have to wait to see what the ETS says. Now, further complicating this issue is the fact that there are 22 state OSHA plans that cover both the private sector, uh, state, and local government uh, workers. And then there are six state plans that only cover state and local workers. So state-operated plans, uh, according to regulations, have to be at least as effective as the federal OSHA plans, but they could, they could be more restrictive. And I believe you're, you may see more restrictive requirements in those states than what is being um, implemented and discussed by federal OSHA. Well, you know, our readers are um, typically can be um, uh, contractors on, on federally funded construction projects. Um, is, is, does that category of, of contractor in, included in this? Uh, this a absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Just about um, every entity in the United States uh, that has a calculable 100 plus employers uh, will be covered by this OSHA ETS. So it impacts a, a large portion of the working population in the United States. And when you say they, they uh, use incorporation as one of the standards for deciding you know, which companies to include, so does that mean that, that subsidiaries uh, underneath one one corporate umbrella would 
could their their employee count could roll up into to that hundred count? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Well, <clears throat> suppose you a company decides to to uh, go with a vaccination program. How do you make sure your vaccination program is on sound legal footing? Okay. Prior to the president's announcement. The legal argument for a workplace mandate by individual employers have been given the green light by the EOC, the CDC, and, and OSHA, with only the exemptions being for religious and disability reasons under Title VII and the American Disabilities Act. Now, while those mandates were deemed permissible at the federal level, some states went out and, and moved to prohibit vaccination mandates through legislative action in their individual states. In late August, there was over 140 bills uh, on this subject introduced across the, across the nation, with some states outright banning uh, employer mandates and passports as a condition of employment and services. Now, the proposed OSHA ETS, if it survives court challenges, then it's, it's going to render all those state laws uh, and prohibitions moot. So what I'm recommending to my clients and those of Air Force is that before they implement any type of mandatory vaccination program that they associate competent legal counsel uh, before they do so, particularly if they're looking to mandate vaccination prior to the ETS, and if they're in states like Montana and North Dakota, where employer mandates have been banned. Now, this concept is not a new one. Uh, within federal law, it's often referred to as what we call the supremacy clause. And basically what that says is, the supremacy clause is that the federal constitution and federal law generally takes precedence over state laws. So while if you're in North Dakota, and we do a lot of work in North Dakota, uh, the state law says no employer mandate is allowed if this passes and, and, and OSHA issues it and it survives the legal challenges that we suspect uh, will be mounted against the ETS, then that state law will become, uh, it'll become ir uh, irrelevant. So it's highly likely that you're going to see this OSHA ETS be issued and, and, and come out and it be enacted prior to any court decisions being rendered. So I fully expect the day that OSHA implements this ETS and publishes it, the very next day, somebody will be at the federal courthouse. But there will be a gap in time. And absent a, an injunction in a federal court that prohibits OSHA from enforcing the ETS, employers will need to make some very important decisions. The first decision as a management team that you got to make is, are we going to comply with the ETS? And does that compliance include the option for weekly testing? So if I'm going to comply, then it's important that I bring together all the stakeholders in developing the policies, the procedures, including competent legal counsel, safety professionals, employee representatives. If I'm on the union side of the house, then my union representatives and, and top management all together. So we're all on the same page. Now, the ETS will be enforced by OSHA through its usual uh, procedures for inspections and citations. 
And that's why it's now more important than ever for employers to know what their rights are and to know what OSHA can do and what OSHA cannot do while we wait on the ETS to be published. Now, the most likely way that I see that OSHA gets involved in your company is through employee complaints, okay? Uh, for example, you have vaccinated employees complain that their employer is not mandating the vaccine or testing for all employees. That's the most likely way that you could end up with an OSHA inspection. So if you're an employer, you've got to decide, am I going to comply or am I going to legally resist? So those employers that, that are deciding that they want to legally resist the OSHA ETS, you know, they may want to go ahead and consult with counsel, but the ways you could do that is if OSHA shows up to, to inspect, you could say, hey, you need to come back with a warrant. Or you could request that they have subpoenas. And should OSHA obtain a warrant or a subpoena, uh, an employer could then go to federal court and ask that warrant or subpoena to be challenged or quashed through legal proceedings. And if, if OSHA prevails at that and they're allowed to inspect and they issue a citation and penalty under the ETS, then employers have a right to appeal that proposed citation and penalty to the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, which is an independent agency that decides cases of OSHA contested citations. And ultimately, from there, you go to the federal district court, and this is probably going to end up in front of the United States Supreme Court. So we got to make some decisions as organizations early on. Most organizations that I work with, contractors like you mentioned, they're not going to have the resources or want to spend the resources, especially after the last year we had in lengthy court battles. So if we're looking to comply, now's the time to start having conversations about what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, what my rights and responsibilities are in developing what our program's going to be. And there's some ambiguity until we get what has been issued by OSHA until we actually see the standard, because there may be things that are different than what you're hearing in your local media outlets and print media and definitely on social media. How soon are we going to see guidance on what this thing's going to look like? Uh, probably in the next 60 days, we should see some things come out from OSHA. Uh, the president has given guidelines early on there was a lot of discussion about uh, in, in the early days of the Biden administration about an OSHA ETS for COVID-19. It kind of fell away because we thought the situation was improving. Vaccinations, you know, social distancing, uh, some of the uh, shelter in place stuff we had done had reduced the count and we looked to be on a good curve. Then the Delta variant changed everything. So, we're not really starting over, or OSHA's not really starting over from a conceptual standpoint. So it shouldn't take months uh, for them to issue this ETS. And it looks like with the backing of the president that it should be coming soon. How, you mentioned uh, states that might be able to implement even more stringent uh, plans or, or mandates. Uh, um, Talk a little bit about that. Uh, why would they be able to do that? And, and uh, which states? Well, 
there are 22 states that have, like California's one, Michigan's one, they have a state-run OSHA program. So they can opt to enforce the regulations, the federal regulations, under their own implemented and enforced program. Their, the only catch is their program has to be sent to federal OSHA, has to be approved, and the rules have to be at least uh, equal to those on the federal level. But you'll have states uh, that, that can be progressive, like California sometimes, that go to another level. They'll say, okay, we, we, this is the federal minimum standard, but we want to be more restrictive in what we do. You see that in some instances of like fall protection, uh, some states are more restrictive than that sometimes when it comes to occupational exposure to chemicals, et cetera. So what could you see? You might see in some of these states where they remove the option for testing. Okay. There really? might be, there might be uh, a situation where they say they want more frequent testing. You might find that there's more uh, cost associated the burden placed on the employer. So until we see what's in the ETS, what I tell people is, we, we can't worry, we can't have angst. You know, it doesn't help. It only creates anxiety. And when we have anxiety, we make poor decisions. So let's wait and see what the federal government comes out with. But if you're in a state like Michigan or California, you also need to get keep up to date on what those governmental entities are doing because they're likely to be more restrictive and more burden put on the employer than in states that are just run by the under the federal OSHA plan. Yeah, yeah. So what options does the construction employer have for administering vaccines and confirming who's vaccinated and when? <clears throat> okay, well, that, that's an excellent question. Employers have many options for directing employees to where vaccinations can be found, as well as partnering with those that could potentially help provide the vaccine on your site or at your place of business. Now, as more workers have to be vaccinated, understand this becomes a supply and demand issue, you know? So if you're going to institute a mandatory vaccination program and comply with the ETS, I'm recommending to my clients and Verforce clients that you go ahead and start encouraging employees now to, to get vaccinated, either under a voluntary uh, compliance type program that's educational and communication based while you wait for the mandate from the federal government to see what's happening or you decide to be proactive and do mandates now. Go ahead and try to get as many people vaccinated as possible if you're going to comply with it. Now, that's interesting that you, we, we could see the cost go up uh, as, as the, the mandate is in place. Well, you know, the vaccine in itself is free. But finding the vaccine, you know, when I went to get vaccinated, uh, my local pharmacy for my second dose ran out. And I had to go someplace else to get the vaccine. And, and I got my second dose as, as recommended by the CDC. However, where I was supposed to go didn't have the vaccine. So my point is, if, you, if you've got millions of workers trying to get this vaccine, at one time, the better as an employer that you can help coordinate that, direct them to the right places. If you can have an employee sponsored program, if you're going to comply, 
then you make it easy and available for those workers to conform to what the expectations are. Now, the second part of your question about, okay, how do we confirm who was vaccinated and when, right? So uh, as of now, the CDC issues a card. As soon as the person gets their first dose of vaccine, they're issued this little card and it's updated as future shots are taken for boosters or second required vaccination or whatever. And that's the easiest way to show proof of vaccination is these cards that are issued by the CDC. Now, some states are offering vaccine passports. Uh, in my state where, where I live, the state of Louisiana has a digital option on your phone. There's an app run by the state. You can upload your information to there. That, that, so there are different ways and, and variations of which you can show proof of vaccination. Now, here's the rub. Once you give that to your employer or an employer receives that, then that becomes a employee medical record by OSHA definition, okay? And it's subject to those record keeping requirements. So what does that mean? That means I now need to have a system in place that keeps documentation of that vaccination for the length of that employee's employment plus 30 years. Okay. That's the current regulation. Now, the ETS may address it. And they may say you need to keep it for five years. You need to keep it for 10 years. You may need to keep it forever. Who knows? We're just going to have to wait and see what's in the ETS. But under current regulation, you need a process in place to keep that, that shot record for the length of their employment plus 30 years. So I recommend you digitize that, right? And work with your HR department. And this is some preliminary stuff you could be doing now to, to be prepared for when the ETS comes out. But I am assuming that, that that as a medical record, it's something that there's confidentiality confidentiality associated with it. They've got to got to manage all those those aspects of that. Absolutely, record. it is a very confidential record. Uh, can you disclose it to certain people if they have a need to know? You can, but it should never be placed in the general employee HR file. It, it is a confidential record. It has protections for employees. It also has some limitations for, for disclosure. But if you need to know as part of a business function, then you need to know and you have a right of access. Well, if somebody's trying to get ahead of this, can employers legally incentivize employees to be vaccinated? Yes. Yes. Uh, the EEOC, the CDC, and OSHA have all spoken positively about employers creating incentives for employees to be vaccinated. Now, the guidance states that incentives cannot be sold, that they are coercive. So, for example, you can't go out and offer $10,000 for each employee to be vaccinated. That would be coercive. But I also want to point out that these guidelines were issued to employers under the time when the employer was issuing the mandate. The proposed ETS is an OSHA regulation. So if the ETS survives legal scrutiny, employers may still offer incentives, but they're less likely to do so. You know, because they're not, it's not something they they're 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 asking their employees to do voluntarily. It's something the federal government's telling us we have to do. But if you wanted to incentivize it, uh, things like paid time off to be vaccinated, 
company swag, low dollar gift cards. Those are common incentives that many employers use uh, to reward people. But just remember, it cannot be coercive. Right. And, and under the what we know about the ETS at this point is that there might be a good reason to do that, right? Because the, the, the cost and the, the administration associated with regular testing is going to be a lot more hassle. A lot. The test a lot. The vaccinations themselves. Absolutely. So we, we've already talked about uh, about some of the costs they can handle. Or can they can they uh, reimburse um, uh, employees for transportation or things like that? Absolutely. Uh, currently, the vaccines are free of charge to everyone, and many employers have chosen to hold hold on site vaccination drives to help defray some of the transportation costs and to encourage vaccination. But employers may pay for transportation. They may reimburse mileage and things if they, if they do so. That's currently uh, under the ETS. We'll have to wait to see if it's required, if it's mandated, if employers have to do that. But certainly they can do that right now and be on safe legal food. All right. All right. Well, uh, you've been talking about these mandates since before the ETS, when it was when it was business uh, owners making mandates and that sort of thing. What what are some of the downsides that you were ta- you've talked about with with employers uh, for for mandates and and uh, you know how, how does a, an employer mitigate those in this current context? Well, prior to the announcement of the ETS by the president. I was advising our clients and Verforce clients to institute a strong educational program. And unless the employer was in a high risk industry like healthcare, strongly encourage a voluntary vaccination and to shy away from mandates. People do not like to be told what to do, right? They want to feel like they have a role in their health care, and, and there's been a lot of misinformation that's out there, a lot of angst, a lot of concern. So what I was advocating was, unless you're in a high-risk area, educate, communicate, involve employees, have employee participation, that kind of thing. Now, with the president's announcement, all that's changed. With the ETS, employers with over 100-plus employees will need to decide here real soon that if they're going to require vaccination or they're going to make an accommodation for weekly testing. Polling still shows that millions of workers are skeptical of the vaccine. And despite media reports to the contrary, the reluctance to be vaccinated crosses racial and political lines. So what are some of the downsides to implementing a vaccine uh, mandate? Well, prior to the ETS, the downside was disgruntled employees that might potentially litigate or simply quit their jobs. Once the ETS is issued, companies do now have a little bit of cover in saying the federal government saying we have to do this. This is an OSHA regulation and we can be fined $14,000 a day per employee for failure to, to comply but really the effect is the same. Disgruntled employees, they can choose to litigate or simply quit their positions. So as we're trying to recover economically uh, from all the events related to COVID of, of 2019, 
I know my conversations with most business owners, they're having trouble hiring qualified workers and, and they're hard to find. And many organizations have openings. So leaders will want to address employee concerns. You know, to counter these downsides, a strong education program is something I'm recommended that's good communication where you listen to your staff's concern, you have qualified individuals there that are speaking to them, that are given the latest information, that their concerns are addressed at the senior most levels of the company, that they have the ability to provide feedback to the top management. Top management can provide feedback to them uh, and, and reasonable accommodations. Uh, if the ETS allows for it, should be seriously con considered. And if it's possible to accommodate someone's request to do so. Yeah. What are some of the essential elements of a communication program like you're talking about to not only address employer, I'm sorry, employees concerns, but to also encourage participation? So employee participation, involvement, control, those are fundamental in the success of any safety management system, which is what my background is, right? This is true for controlling any hazard in the workplace. And COVID-19 is a hazard. Um, nothing more, nothing less. It's a serious hazard. It's a deadly hazard. But so are falls, so are confined spaces, things like struck by heavy equipment. That's a hazard too. So the hallmarks of an effective communication plan for COVID-19 is really no different than that of a successful safety management system. Communication must flow from top management to the line workers and from line workers to top management. Now that communication needs to be honest. It needs to be timely. It needs to be easily understood. Leaders must lead by example. As events change, workers need to be informed. Now, one of the, the things that's going to come back uh, when we go back and look at COVID-19 and we're past this pandemic that we're going to see is part of the confusion in the general public is the ever-changing message from our leaders in the federal government, WHO, CDC, local and state officials, media pundits, and social media. The public is constantly bombarded sometimes with conflicting information. So to avoid that within your organization, um, as more information is learned, as we learn about the virus and it evolves, we need to be able to communicate that to our staff, the why we're doing things in an easy to understand manner that any employee can comprehend. Now, how do we do that? Trusted, maybe physicians that speak to us, to my staff. Uh, leaders, the top leader addressing the workforce. If I'm going to mandate uh, a vaccination and I'm the leader, wouldn't it be effective for me to show my vaccination card and say, I've done it. I've done it. My family's done it. You know, talk about your experiences. Talk about any side effects that you have. Communicate with your people. And then make sure that the guidance that you're giving is from qualified, trusted sources, such as state health organizations, the Centers for Disease Control, and that's going to help close the credibility gap. And there is a credibility gap that exists in our nation today. Lastly, encourage your employees to talk to their physicians. 
Most people trust their doctor. So, you know, this has been the most challenging health crisis of our lifetimes. Accurate information is paramount. And the chain of command within the company, from the CEO all the way down to that field supervisor, they have to be able to speak in one voice. So the last thing of this, and it's kind of, I'm being kind of long-winded about it, but it's important. Sure. Is top management is responsible for creating a safe atmosphere in which employee concerns can be voiced without fear of retribution, criticism, or reprisal. So employee comments and concerns have got to be viewed to be taken seriously by management, right? You cannot take the approach to say, just do what we tell you to do. Because many workers are electing to leave the workforce because of that. So just sending out an email may not be effective. You know, you may have to leverage your technology using applications like Zoom, live streaming, in-person sessions uh, that are attended and led by senior management. That's critical to establishing a culture of participation in which employees feel like they can voice their concerns. And where you are in the process, you might go ahead and say, hey, we're going to establish a method for employees to ask questions anonymously so you can create an atmosphere of psychological safety. Yeah, that, this may be one of the biggest communication challenges our industry, construction industry, has ever faced. So how should employers who offer weekly testing as an alternative manage that data? Um, that's, you know, that's one thing that we've, we've kind of touched on. But, yeah. you know, that's going to be obviously uh, under the same kind of confidentiality uh, kind of situation as the vaccines. But by the same token, it's going to have to be in a, in a form, I assume, that you're going to be able to communicate it at least to OSHA. Uh, well, you know, while the administration has offered the weekly testing option, what they really want is 100% vaccination. And there are a lot of questions that the administration has not provided answers for, OSHA has not provided answers for, related to the testing option. And we're only going to be able to know if they let some information out prior to the ETS being issued or once the ETS issues. For example, who's going to pay for that weekly testing? My assumption is, based on experience, that OSHA is going to attempt to place that burden on the employer, right? That's been the past practice, and I expect that to be included in the ETS. Uh, for those that offer the weekly testing option, the only way I can see that testing is effective and timely reporting is that you're going to have to uh, create some systematic approach for it. So employees are not sent to go get their own test, so to speak. Hey, we're going to have a centralized systematic approach. You go to this person, you get your test done, it gets sent in. And, and we have accurate time-sensitive information that's disseminated to the people that know and only the people that know that's appropriate. But we're going to have to wait and see things like who's going to pay for it? How long is the test going to be good for? Which test is acceptable to OSHA? Mm -hmm. Can I go to work while I'm waiting on test results? What do we do if we have a, a positive? Followed up by another, how long do we need to wait to do another test? All these are questions 
everyone's asking. I wish I had the answers to, but we're going to have to wait on the ETS for motion. Well, are there other elements of administering a program that, that we haven't touched on? Well, I think when we talk about data retention, uh, particularly if you're a multi-state employer, you need to have some type of digitized electronic methods and get away from spreadsheets as determining who's vaccinated and who's not. Uh, I would approach it, we're approaching it just like we do safety training. We put it in LMS, we're tracking it by the individual's first name, last name, date of birth, last four of their social security number. If it's an HR function, maybe it's their full social security number. We have, we have a place for that information to be uploaded. It's held there, it's confidential, but if somebody needs it, it's readily retrievable. Um, this is going to be a challenge. And that's that where the, the, the digital storage of this data becomes important is it, is it makes it easily retrievable, right? Because if you've got right. it on a spreadsheet, it's, you know, it's in somebody's, mem somebody's digital memory so on some device someplace. That's correct. Yeah. And that, that, if I'm a small organization, maybe uh, I look to do it, to do it that way. But if we're talking about country, companies with 100 plus employees, normal turnover ratios in the construction industry. We're talking about potentially thousands of, of workers data that we're going to need to, to be able to capture and right. confirm. Right. And you need to be able to make sure that that, that data is, is secure. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Um, so it seems to me like there's really no precedent for, for what might happen next. Uh, you know, what, how the, the legal challenges might play out in a situation like that. It, are there, is there, is there something that you would refer to that, you know, th that looks like this, that uh, could give us a, a feel for, you know, what might happen in the, in court? Well, in two, in recent memory, there were, there are two, I guess, instances of OSHA uh, related to, one's related to emergency uh, temporary standard Another one's related to asbestos enforcement, right? So the last time OSHA tried an ETS, it did not survive court muster under the asbestos. And the key is, and, and I, you know, I don't want to get into legal, legal advice or, or some of this, but it's going to hinge on the term of grave danger now, the proponents say, obviously, it's grave danger. We're having people die. But is it work-related grave danger? Other challenges that you'll see mounted to the, to the ETS are going to be around OSHA saying you have to give paid time off. Is that allowable under the OSH Act, or is OSHA overextending its authority? That's what happened with the ergonomic standards. Uh, back in the Clinton administration, OSHA wanted to enact an ergonomic standard, and they did. And it got into some issues related to workers' compensation, things like that. That's a state issue. And there were several court challenges uh, related to it. In the middle of that, there was election. And the, and the presidency changed. Uh, George W. Bush was elected. Both houses of Congress changed. And Congress said, no more ergonomic standards, and it went away. So your legislative process at the federal level may impact this. What happens inside different 
different uh, federal courthouses. Who knows? But ultimately, I think this ends up in front of the Supreme Court of the United States. Yeah. And that could be a lengthy process. So in the meantime, like I said, employers have got to decide, am I going to comply? Because it could be it could be months, it could be years before the Supreme Court takes up this case, even if they do take up this case. Yeah. Yeah. So we have got to make some plans now. But I guess the the important thing is, you know, if there's an injunction that that uh, uh, halts enforcement um, primarily, right? Right. And typically that will probably um, be something that's filed in the D.C. circuit. Uh, It'll get review, appellate review pretty quickly, and you'll find out whether or not we're going to have an injunction for enforcement or a partial injunction or it's going to be allowed to stand. But as at, for planning as an employer, you know, you can't, you can't never predict what a court's going to do or when they're going to do it. If I have more than 100 employees, I'm going to start right now with vice counsel, with my HR representatives, as top management and decide, am I going to comply or am I not going to comply? If I'm not going to comply, then there are some legal uh, remedies that I talked about earlier that you can go through yeah. if you get inspected. If you are going to comply, then you need to start putting together a plan of action to do so. And paramount in that plan of action is communicating to the workers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, once again, big communication challenge here. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's really going to test a, a lot of contractors' ability to, to, you know, open the lines of communication with their employees. Um, well, James, thank you so much for your help with this. You've really given us a lot of good information to work on. Uh, you know, I, I, I wish you the best because uh, I'm sure you're in the eye of the hurricane here uh, very often with, with some of these companies. Um, uh, thanks for spending your time with us and your sharing your expertise. I'm Larry Stewart with 4constructionpros.com. This is the Digging Deeper podcast. Thanks for tuning in. You keep listening and we'll keep digging.